Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a third proposal has been brought forward for Hamilton's so-called entertainment district. We've heard plans from Vrancor Group, Carmen's Group, and now Pearl Hospitality are throwing their hat into the ring. Results slowly starting to roll in from the Iowa caucus, and from all appearances, it looks like Mayor Pete is going to come away the winner. We'll talk about that. And confusion has struck Ontario courts after an Ontario Court of Appeal decision found a legislative change that has really messed things up, including some past decisions. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. In our city right now, in Hamilton City Hall, it's a busy day today uh, with a number of presentations being made to have city council. Uh, there is yet a third proposal now for downtown venue op- options. Uh, we've told you about the other two, of course, over the program over the last couple of weeks, the Rancor Group. Darko Vranich, of course, and his uh, his group have made a presentation. Well, they're about to make a presentation. They've got a proposal. Uh, the other group, of course, PJ Mercandy and the Carmen's group and a number of other partners are involved in this. Now we're told that this other group called Pearl Hospitality has submitted uh, a, a request to uh, tell us what they want to do with this. Uh, <laughs> this is a, just a, a wealth of, of all of a sudden, you know, investment or potential investment, which is not really the, usually the case here in Hamilton. Hasn't been for a long, long time. I want to get John Best into uh, the conversation here. John, of course, is the uh, the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, uh, so much uh, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us here today. My pleasure, Bill. Yeah, there's an old adage that you know if things look too good to be true, they probably are. Where are these people coming from all of a sudden? Why are they so interested in downtown? Not just downtown Hamilton, but with our entertainment precinct. Well, uh, certainly because they know that there's there's going to be some sort of uh, either call for proposals, uh, you know that you know that it, it appears, you know, the city has clearly signaled that they're ready to do some, to uh, have some major development take place in those three facilities. So naturally, it's going to attract uh, various bidders. But uh, you know, Hamilton's not the only city that's got a downtown that needs redevelopment. So. The idea that this is the only place uh, where this can happen is, uh, you know, uh, really not on. Um, the, the fact is uh, there's there's a number of communities in Ontario where these opportunities exist. And, uh, you know, because we went through that whole process in the 80s and 90s where our downtowns uh, were sort of hollowed out. So they're all sort of waiting, uh, you know, whether it's London, uh, they certainly had an issue, Windsor. Uh, same thing, uh, you know, uh, the, in that case, uh, they thought that the casino was going to revitalize it, but it really hasn't. So, you know, there's a lot of medium-sized cities, medium to large-sized cities that uh, where these opportunities currently exist. So to have this many people, and, and by the way, we should mention too, because there is a common thread between all of these. These, uh, to a large extent, are local investors. Uh, yes, they are. Uh, they're, uh, they all have deep roots in the community, and... Uh, it, you know, and I and I, to be honest, I I think uh, they are they're all to a degree motivated uh, by their belief in in Hamilton. I think that's the one thing uh, you know that does um, sort of uh, work across uh, all three of these groups. But we've tried this in the past. Uh, I mean, by that I mean the city, you know, to try to get somebody to partner uh, to do something. Uh, with the downtown core, and especially with these entertainment facilities that, that of course, the city still owns. Uh, and we've got nothing but crickets any time they've put a request for proposal out before. Is is, is this just a, a, a wave of investment that's happening in every city and we're, we're catching the wave, or is this something specific for Hamilton? 
Well, I, I think uh, it, it's a little bit specific to Hamilton in the sense that, that because of, I mean, everything that's happening in Hamilton right now in terms of our growth, um, our, uh, you know, all these good news announcements about tech companies, it's all related to our proximity to Toronto. So what is, what is clearly running through the whole GTA is here we have a community. It's a, it's a self-contained city. Uh, it's a, it's not a bedroom community. And, uh, w- there's been a lot of out commuting going on here for decades. And now suddenly, uh, you know, companies are saying, well, gee, I can, I can get office space in Hamilton, uh, cheaper, way cheaper than I can in Toronto. I can access a workforce that's got pretty much the same skill set, uh, as, uh, as what I have in Toronto. And, and the difference is affordability are, our workers can live here and even aspire to own a home. So I, I think that's the, the sort of underlying positive pressure that's happening in Hamilton. In terms of the three bids, I, I mean, I think if you really look at them, and let's face it, there's not a lot of specificity with any of them, I think the key elements are rebuilding, expanding, or doing something to increase the size of the convention center, building condos, and building a first-class hotel, all three of those amenities have the potential to make money. So there's the attraction. The arena is a dead loss for any of them. And and so the issue is going to be, how do you tuck an arena into this? I know there's members of council that think somehow out of all this, we, we stir this pot, and somehow out of it, the other end comes a, a free arena. Uh, I see, and I've talked to some developers, there, there is no scenario uh, where an arena can be built uh, by um, strictly private funds. Arenas lose money. That's why cities build them, uh, because nobody else will. And in the case of Hamilton, it may not be a direct tax hit, which you're seeing in some of the discussion. They're saying, well, we won't ask you to raise taxes and we won't ask you to dip into reserves. There's other ways the city can finance it. Uh, they, they can transfer money that was earmarked for repairs to the existing facilities. Uh, they, can, they can provide tax relief uh, over a period of time so that we don't realize the, the tax on, for instance, the condos. Uh, we don't get that right away. We wait 10 or 15 years. Um, and then there's property uh, that can be sold and, and developed, and, and that has significant value. I think that's how the arena is going to get paid for, Bill. It's not going to sort of magically happen uh, as an offshoot of these various bids. Well, which is probably why, uh, notwithstanding, we've had a couple of consultants' reports. I think we've had about 20 of them, actually. But a couple of them have actually said, no, you've got to just knock that sucker down and build something new. But these three proposals that they'll be talking with today are all saying, look, let's just refurbish what we got, Uh, which I guess is going to be a cost-saving at some point. But... I mean, you remember, John, even back a few years ago when Jim Balsley was trying to bring uh, the Arizona f- uh, hockey team here, and yeah. he, he showed a concept, a conceptual drawing of, of what he was going to do the arena. It was bas- basically rebuilding the arena uh, you know, on the same property. That's really what it came down to, and I think that's what they're going to have to do here. I mean, th- there's, there's a lot of problems with that building, and I know it's structurally sound. It's not like it's going to fall over or anything, but to make it competitive and to make it the sort of uh, thing that's amenable for for concerts, but at the same time for well a hockey team, which was I guess going to be the uh, the uh, this, the anchor tenant in a situation like this, uh, there's there's too many contrasts here that just don't seem to work together. So I'm I'm interested to see how they're going to tackle that. 
Well, I, I, I looked at the Pearl uh, uh, application. I'm not sure they were talking about refurbishing the arena. Uh, they, they may have been contemplating um, uh, uh, an arena in a different location. From the standpoint of the Hamilton Bulldogs, um, obviously uh, a scenario that saw an arena go in another location would allow them to continue to stay in Hamilton and then consider whether they want to go into the new arena or not. Uh, anything involving uh, major renovations obviously would force them to, to leave town immediately in order to continue playing. Yeah, we're not going to pull this thing like the Tiger Cats had to do by going to Guelph for a year. I mean, that's that's not feasible for a junior A team. Well, I think we saw what happened there. There was a, you know, it resulted in tremendous losses. And frankly, if we hadn't had an owner like uh, Bob Young, uh, you know, I don't know what would have happened. Uh, might be working with a one-division uh uh, CFL uh, at this point. So, you know, I, I think, um, I, I frankly, I wouldn't be surprised to see more bids come forward uh, because uh, I think certainly the convention center, hotel, condo aspect uh, probably makes sense to developers from all over Canada. Uh, I think the issue is, um, is whether this process uh, is... Uh, is as transparent as it needs to be. Uh, you know, serious bidders are not want to get involved in Hamilton politics, and they're not want to get involved in a in a process where maybe the thing is wired already for somebody else. Uh, there was a friend of mine in the uh, public relations business. He used to say, "If the project ain't wired for you, it's wired for somebody else." So <laughs> I, I hope that's not the case here. But well, that seems to be the weak link. I mean, you know, we know Darko Vernich, and we know some of the stuff he's done, and uh, we know the you know the Mercantes and Leuna and 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 these other groups that are involved in, in that particular bid. And uh, well, we know of. Uh, the Pearl Hospitality Group, uh, the second generation, both of them, of course, Aaron Waxman yep. and uh, and Aaron Cinconi are both involved in, in that, among others, I'm sure. So we, we, those lines are fine, and I don't doubt their sincerity that this is what they want to do, but let's cut to the bottom line here. There's There's been a track record here of city councils fumbling these things time and time again, i.e. stadium, and a couple of other projects, uh, and, uh, you know, do, uh, uh, do we trust them to do the right thing with the right people? Well, as you say, the track record is not good, uh, and uh, so I think we have to certainly be vigilant about what's going on, but the problem with these kind of negotiations is by necessity they have to take place behind closed doors. Uh, the deliberation has to take place in camera, much as we'd love to be, be a fly on the wall. So we really don't know what's going on. We really don't know if there's a political undercurrent to these uh, competing bids. Uh, where, uh, you know, I, people are, are possibly wasting their time by, by participating. You know, I, I guess if, if there is a sense that the fix is in, and I do hear that a little bit, um, then uh, let's, uh, you know, sort of open the kimono. Let's see the deal. Uh, and right now we're, we're looking at very carefully worded uh, nebulous proposals. And, and fair enough, that's you know that's the way the process works. You start off with a, with kind of a, a vague concept uh, document that sets out sort of the, the key themes that you want to address, and then when you get down to the negotiation, then you start seeing okay, where's the money coming from? Who's paying for what? And uh, you know that's that's the complicated part. But the public and the media are not going to be part of that discussion. So uh, you know today there's. 
there's going to be a public presentation, um, and then there's going to be an in-camera session. And I can tell you that the dialogue in the in-camera session is going to be a lot different than what we hear in public. I think it's pretty safe bet that at the end of the day today, what they're probably going to do is just refer all the stuff back to staff and say, here, you guys go and talk about this uh, and, and put some meat on the bones here and see what it's going to be like. I mean, they're not going to make a decision about one or the other today. But well, just, I would hope not. But uh, well, so, so little specificity. Unless, as no, unless, as you say, they, 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 you know, they've already decided what they want to do. Uh, and again, I'm, I, I don't want to bring up the bulldogs and the Lime Ridge Mall situation again, John. But it just seems, in hindsight, uh, talking to Mr. Andelar and talking to some of the people involved in that uh, scenario, that they were somewhat disingenuous with Mr. Andelar in, in their dealings about what they thought might go up there and kind of strung them along for a little bit. And I think, uh, you know, you don't want to do that too often to people because they're going to turn their backs on you eventually. Well, I think there's a sense uh, that, that, you know, to some degree, Hamilton as a place to do business, at least on these kind of projects, uh, is already tainted a little bit. Uh, Certainly, if you you look at uh, Mr. Andelauer's presentation that he made last fall, uh, he made it clear that he, he was having what he thought were productive discussions with staff three years ago, uh, and yet uh, when, when it got to council, uh, they, they were all sitting there saying, well, who's this last-minute guy, uh, which is very unfair. You, I mean, uh, you know, people that have serious money to invest should not be jerked around that way. Well, and then there were some comments made by some of the councillors and some comments made by some of the staff, frankly, that uh, that I, I, I thought were, were bothersome and somewhat disingenuous. And, and quite frankly, I, you know, if that's not the sort of attitude that you want to have. So we'll see. I mean, you know, as I say, the, 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 it's going to be the, the city council that's ultimately going to have to make a decision about which one of these bids to go with. Uh, I, I, they may well have some preferences already. I'm not so sure about that. And I don't discount your idea, John, that there may actually be more people who want to come forward here uh, to do this sort of thing. But, uh, you know, that's the problem. I understand fully that you've got to do negotiations for rent land and real estate behind closed doors because you don't want to tip your hand to the other competitive bids that are in situations like this. But uh, the, at some point, the, 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 you know, the public's got to be aware of what's going on and, and where the dollars and cents are. I'm always skeptical when the city says, don't worry, this isn't going to cost you a nickel as a taxpayer uh, because somewhere down the road it always seems to. Well, I, I think in terms of the arena, uh, what it's going to cost the taxpayer would be deferred revenue. And I guess you can call that no cost, but uh, it's revenue that you would otherwise get uh, that you're not going to get for 15 or 20 years uh, while uh, you amortize the arena. Uh, but a, a scenario where you get a free arena, I just hope members of council will disabuse themselves of that dream because it's not on. Of the three facilities, uh, Hamilton Place, uh, First Ontario Concert Hall, I guess is what we're calling it now, uh, yeah. seems to be in, in, uh, in the best scenario. I don't think it needs a whole lot of work. I mean, it's, it does its, its job and it suits its purpose, I think, quite well. The convention center, I mean, five years after they built this thing, the convention center was too small for what we need to do in a city like this. So that's, that can't just be a redo. We're going to have to do something there. And the arena... Uh, I've seen all sorts of drawings about what they can and cannot do with that. And, and uh, you know, there's going to have to be a fair amount of money, I would think, dumped into that to try to make that feasible. Yeah, I mean, uh, we were talking about a new arena costing $100 million, and uh, I think one of the proposals I looked at for refurbishing the existing arena was around $70 million. Uh, I mean, according to, uh, if you look at the staff report that nicks the uh, Lime Ridge deal, uh, staff were comparing the Lime Ridge deal to a scenario that they called 
status quo. And in that status quo, they were talking about spending $3 million a year on upgrades for the next 20 years on, uh, or not upgrades, but just uh, maintenance, I guess, uh, and fix-up on, on uh, the First Ontario Centre. Uh, now, I'm not sure the council has, in fact, committed itself to spending $3 million a year uh, to upgrade those facilities. But it was interesting that that was what staff was comparing uh, the Lime Ridge proposal to. But if they're planning on spending that, that's $60 million right there that, that would essentially maintain the arena more or less as it is now uh, without any upgrades. So uh, I'm not sure that maintaining the arena in the long run is much cheaper than building a new one. Exactly. Well, we'll see what they say today after the presentations. I guess we'll get a little more clarity as to what's going on. Uh, John, thanks as always for this. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer, and uh, we'll certainly keep you posted. Uh, CHML's Ken Mann is uh, keeping an eye on those meetings and those presentations at City Hall, and uh, when we get some news about it, you'll be the first to know. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. State of the Union speech last night, uh, divisive. Uh, well, there's all sorts of adjectives I guess we could use. Uh, the uh, war of staring, I guess, between Donald Trump and uh, Nancy Pelosi continues. Uh, with uh, the, well, you saw the, the stuff, I'm sure you've seen the video on this too, him refusing to shake her hand, and the uh, Democrats basically sitting through the speech, which is kind of typical. There's an awful lot of theater that goes on in that. So I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about another very important uh, political story south of the border too. Uh, finally starting to get some results about the Iowa caucus that was held the other night. Joining us to talk about this is a Professor Jack Colwell, who is a distinguished visiting journalist with the Gallivan Program in Journalism, Ethics, and Democracy at the University of Notre Dame, and uh, also a columnist with the uh, South Bend Tribune. Uh, Professor, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good to be with you. Let me lead off, if I could, with the Iowa stuff. Sure. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, did anybody see that coming? Well, uh, there was the, the, kind of that outside chance that he uh, might actually uh, pull off an upset. But I think uh, most of the, the thought, thinking was that uh, he needed to finish somewhere in the top three in order to, to really uh, stay viable and, and to claim some sort of a victory. But, of course, he, uh, he, he actually... Uh, well, we we still don't know, even as we speak now, the final results. But it, it appears that he either won or was darn close, almost in a tie for victory there. Yeah, he's percentage points ahead of Bernie Sanders at this yes. stage. I've been, and, and as you say, they haven't counted them yet. The last I heard, it was about sixty-five or seventy percent. So there's still a lot to come in. Yeah, I think it's seventy-one percent. Is it now? Very slow. This is kind of like the old days. They're delivering the results by horseback, I think, aren't they? I, but <laughs> I think it was faster then. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, we all know the story. There's an app that caused all these hassles and everything. Yeah. But I saw his, well, they all, about five of them gave, you know, victory speeches, of course, after the, you know, they didn't get the results. His was particularly poignant, I thought, though. Yeah. Um, and, and well-written and well-delivered as well. And uh, even if you weren't a big fan of Mayor Pete before, uh, this rush that he got in Idaho and, and that speech, which was carried by most of the networks, yes. uh, I, I think is opening a few people's eyes. Yes. Uh, it, uh, unfortunately for him, though, uh, there wasn't that immediate bounce that normally comes uh, if if, if if he had uh, if that showing of his that he won or darn near won had come Monday night when all of the coverage was still going on uh, there in Iowa, uh, he he would have uh, had a lot more publicity. Would have been headlines in in all the papers the next morning. So he was deprived of a little bit of that traditional bounce 
that comes uh, from a win in Iowa uh, as, as the candidates then go on to New Hampshire. Well, and that's a big thing. I mean, they, you know, the, the thing about Idaho is, is it's first. It's the first one of, of all yeah. the primaries that are coming up. And it's, you're right, it's, it's usually the one that somebody wants to get a bounce into going into the other ones because it's going to get pretty hectic over the next six weeks, isn't it? Right, and also, as, as you were mentioning, that uh, the State of the Union uh, address last night, that, uh, you know, started to get the headlines away from, uh, from Iowa, and then uh, an impeachment uh, vote today in the Senate, headlines on that. So a lot of people now are kind of forgetting about Iowa, and some people, uh, rather than saying, wow, that was a, a tremendous showing by Mayor Pete, they're still just kind of joking about how the Democrats couldn't even add up the the votes. Yeah, that's the story, and unfortunate for for a guy like Put, Buttigieg to, to win this thing, yeah. uh, because the other storyline, of course, is is not so much that he won; uh, it's where Joe Biden finished, and it's right. it's the way the vote actually came out. Uh, not, I don't mean the numbers necessarily, but the, you know how it took so long to get the results. Yes, it's it's not a sullied victory, but uh, he's he's not on page one anymore. That's right. But and he's got New Hampshire next. I mean, the next primary is New Hampshire, uh, which just about everybody, uh, Jack, is conceding to, to Bernie Sanders. Is 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 that accurate? That that seems to be one that he can just put in the wind column on, almost automatically. Well, I think so. Uh, if he doesn't win, it would be a startling uh, upset by by someone else, and it would almost knock uh, Bernie out of out of contention. So I don't think that's going to happen. Although. Uh, I think uh, analysts will be looking at how uh, the the extent of Bernie's victory. Uh, will he have, uh, you know, just a, a twenty point victory, or will it be only uh, in single digits? So that'll be analyzed too. What about Biden at, at this stage? I mean, th- again, I don't know that anybody thought he was going to win in Iowa, but uh, right. but uh, you know, the fourth place finish. Uh, we already know the stories. He was having trouble raising money. He hasn't raised as much as some of the other ones. Uh, he has not really met expectations, let alone exceeded them. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think he's ready to drop out of the race by any stretch no. of the imagination because I mean, we're in early days here. You know, and there, there's still a lot going on, and Super Tuesday is really going to, I guess, make right. a determination. But how do you rebound from something like that, Jack? Well, it, it's good. I think it's going to be be hard. Now, he actually has benefited uh, by all the confusion. Uh, in in Iowa, uh, because again, if those totals had come out Monday night, that would have been another big story. How how Biden finished uh, fourth, and uh, uh, it it looks like it didn't even uh, win a, a delegate. Uh, but now, uh, instead of stories about uh, Biden and how he finished, uh, the news media they've, they've turned to other subjects. Uh, you know, as I said, state state of the union and, and impeachment. And then uh, when they talk about Iowa, still there's the tendency to kind of joke about it that, uh, hey, the Democrats couldn't even add up the votes. Let's talk about the chronology. The State of the Union's come and gone, and there's still yeah. going to be some talk about that in a couple of seconds here, but, and, and, and probably in the coming days. Uh, the vote on impeachment is at 4 o'clock today. It's a foregone conclusion. Oh, we know sure. where that's going to go. Oh, yeah. Does that fall out of everybody's consciousness after today? Because it's, I mean, he's going to bring it up, I'm sure. that you know The word exoneration, I think, is probably going to get overused an awful lot in the next couple of days by Trump oh, and his supporters. But, oh, I think so. A lot of tweets about that. But but once they get into New Hampshire and they start into the primaries there, uh, is, is the f- American focus, is the national focus going to be on that? Well, uh, I think 
probably there uh, there won't be uh, a, a lot of focus on the impeachment vote it, itself as as things go on uh, because the stories don't capture headlines for very long uh, anymore uh but just the the general conduct uh, of of the president and the things that were brought up uh, uh, with the impeachment charges those will still be uh, uh, talked about of course by by the democrats and and uh, the president will still be tweeting about how uh it was a witch hunt and 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 so on but for a lot of voters i think they're going to turn their attention to uh, some of the things that affect their daily lives, especially health care, I think will will uh, become a, a major issue. Uh, what happens with the economy, maybe not the economy in general, but the economy as it affects uh, average citizens, the average voter, I think things like that will become more paramount. Let me ask you about that, and we can kind of segue in, I guess, to the State of the Union address. In sure. the first part of it, he did talk about his his economic view of uh, his rather tilted economic view of uh, of the United States right now. And he mentions the stock market on a pretty regular basis. Uh, yeah. And he did again last night about how it's soaring. Uh, a very small percentage of Americans actually invest in the stock market. And I know by by extension, I mean, a lot of pension funds are tied sure. up with that as yeah. well. Yeah. But what I'm hearing and what a lot of us are hearing, Jack, is, yeah, the, the market's doing great. But it's not filtering down to to Main Street USA to small towns. And you know, in other words, if you're if you're on Wall Street, you're you're in you know you're happier. Yes. But but you know if you're if you're in Delaware or Idaho or someplace like that, you're saying, well, it's not touching me at all. Yeah, and I think that uh, that will have an effect. I, I think uh, a lot of voters will be looking at uh, their own financial status, not how uh, things are going on on, on Wall Street. Um, and uh, also, there may be more analysis of his claims of, of uh, having turned around the economy. Uh, it actually, uh, a strong argument can be made that this is a continuation of the Obama recovery uh, that uh, came after the nation faced almost a, a second uh, depression. Uh, and, and Trump certainly uh, deserves some credit, I think, uh, uh, he hasn't uh, stopped the recovery, but I think it's probably uh, a false claim that he uh, brought all this uh, about, um, and and that'll be analyzed, and people will look at it, and uh, I suppose <laughs> in most cases, as as divided as the nation is, they will look at those statistics with whichever side they they uh, agree with. You're uh, right in Middle America, just about anyway, in India and in South Bend, sure. uh, and and those are you know the, what some people would call the rural Americans. I mean, you know, you're not the big city guys, etc. But you know, yeah. you're impacted by what's going on in your community and in your neighborhood. Sure. What what are you hearing down there about about the way things are? I mean, yes, you know, when you see some of these reporters going off from whichever network it is, and they're talking to people on some of these smaller towns, especially during primary season. You hear a much different story than you hear from the economists. You know that hey, things are going great right now. That that unemployment is still a problem in many many parts of the country right now. Uh, farmers are hurting. I, you know the, the, the heat. Trump and the team seem to think that that's a, a a big part of the foundation of his support right now in Wisconsin and places like that. 
But then you see and talk to some of the people that are down there, and they say things are not yeah. much better. As a matter of fact, in a lot of ways, they're worse because of some of the tariffs that he's imposed over the last little while. Does that translate into voters looking and saying, okay, I think I may just want to park my vote someplace else? Well, uh, certainly the economy, uh, the rise in the economy is, is not even. And uh, there are uh, some people, especially if, if, if they still don't have a, uh, a decent job and, and, and a large segment of the population might fall into that category, uh, they're, going to, they're going to look at, at claims about what a great economy we have a little differently than some of those people you've talked about who uh, have uh, investments in a lot of stocks and are doing so well uh, on Wall Street. Uh, it, it's, it's so so difficult for the average person, however, to analyze uh, those statistics, especially when um, they're being spun uh, different ways by the, dif- the different uh, political parties and candidates. So how they finally uh, decide on how the economy really is going, and, and more important than that, how, what way is it headed? Is it really going to show improvement for their lives, or is it going to be stagnant? Um, how, how they come down on that could well be a, a deciding factor in the election. One of the things, I'll just swing back to Mayor Pete, if I could, for sure. a second, during his speech on Monday night. Uh, he talked about trying to attract uh, you know, what they call Trump Democrats, people that were, for a variety of reasons, a lot of them, I think, just didn't like Hillary Clinton last election, yes. said, look, I've always voted Democrat, but I just can't vote her. So they went to Trump because they, yes. they, they believe the false promises. Not unlike the, the Reagan Democrats back in, in that era. Uh, but it took a long time for the Democrats to repatriate those voters. I mean, you know, they stuck with Reagan, they stuck with Bush Sr. Uh, it wasn't until Bill Clinton came along that they decided, okay, fine, we've got a guy again. Do, yes. you, do you see a guy, is it Mayor Pete, is it somebody else that can do that, that can repatriate those lost votes? Well, an interesting thing about Iowa is that his strategy included really going after uh, voters of that type. He concentrated on counties where there were uh, voters who had uh, gone uh, for uh, President Obama twice and then switched over to Trump. Uh, So uh, his strategy was to try to reach some of those voters and to convince them, hey, uh, okay, you were dissatisfied, you went with Trump the last time, but look at uh, what's going on now, and and how about uh, coming back to the the, uh, Democratic Party? It worked. That's where he uh, got a lot of his support in Iowa, and apparently where he has won uh, a number of, of delegates. So uh, it, it worked in Iowa, in, in the, the caucuses. Now, will that work nationwide? Uh, I, I don't know, but I think it's certainly worth an attempt by the Democrats to do that. Another question that keeps coming up here, and I, I just want to get your read on this too, since sure. you're in the same neck of the woods where Mayor Pete was, of course, the mayor of South Bend for a couple of terms. Yeah. Uh, the failure to attract black voters is is something that always gets brought up. That's his Achilles' heel. Uh, yes. How can he overcome that, or can he overcome that, even if he becomes the nominee? Uh, what happens to that black vote? Do they simply say, "Well, we don't necessarily like him, but he's the nominee," or do they go someplace else? Well, that's his big problem, uh, and, and uh, he has been trying uh, to uh, sway more black voters. Uh, thus far, really, he has not done so. 
Now, South Carolina will, will come up after New Hampshire and Nevada. And if he has not uh, changed uh, more of the attitude of black voters uh, 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 to be positive toward him, uh, that probably will be uh, pretty much the end of his candidacy. I mean, he can't go into South Carolina and get only 5 or even 10% of the black vote and still go on as, as uh, a likely nominee. Now, he's been trying, uh, but thus far uh, there just has not been uh, the type of positive communication that uh, transfers into, into actual voter support. And there's a number of people that are involved in, in situations like that, too, that right. uh, that just didn't seem to resonate. I mean, let's face it, I go back a year or so ago, Jack, when this whole thing started. I mean, a lot of people were, were looking at somebody like Kamala Harris and figuring, you know, this is this is somebody that's really going to have an impact, and it never really just happened. You, you, really, it's hard to get a good read on this stuff, isn't it? It really is. I thought she would do much better, really. I, not necessarily that she would be the nominee, <clears throat> but I never dreamed that she'd be one of the the first major candidates to, to just drop out. Um, uh, some of the other candidates that, uh, that you thought would have a, a real chance at, at top tier also uh, didn't make it. And, and it's hard to tell why some do and, and some don't. Uh, it, it, some of it is just, I guess, if, if, uh, if voters see a type of charisma that they like, a, a personality that they like, um, then that person's going to uh, go on and, and, and uh, maybe reach the top tier. If, if there's something in the personality or the speaking style or, uh, that they don't like, uh, they just uh, kind of write them off. Well, we saw that with uh, Bill Clinton, saw with Barack Obama, yeah. uh, all the way back to JFK. There's got to be that, that connection, doesn't there, between the voters and, and that personality. And you're right, communication's part of it. And that's why I, I was so impressed by, by Mayor Pete's speech on Monday night. Uh, it was, a, a, as one, I think it was Brian Williams on MSNBC, it was, he said it was like an Obama-like speech. And I can understand where he's coming mm-hmm. from. The cadence... Uh, yes. the, the message it was very much like what we heard, uh, well, a number of years ago, the first time we saw Barack Obama. Yes, and um, something about that speech uh, that perhaps uh, most of the viewers didn't quite realize at the time was he knew that he had basically won in Iowa, even if the Iowa Democrats didn't uh, have their votes counted. Uh, his organization had returns from um, most of those uh, caucus sites. So he knew at that time that he legitimately could claim, if not outright victory, uh, a, a symbolic victory, having come from, well, a year ago, being almost totally unknown in, in, in Iowa and in, in most of the, of the nation. But he'd, he'd come from there to pull what really was just an outstanding political achievement. So... Um, he felt comfortable, I think, in in uh, virtually claiming victory because he knew uh, from his own totals that uh, victory was uh, either uh, had been obtained or, or it was darn close. Uh, we're just about out of time right now. A fabulous conversation, Jack. Thank you so much for the insight. I'd like, like to stay in touch with you as this evolves over oh, the next certainly. couple of weeks. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Professor Jack Caldwell from Notre Dame University. Uh, which happens to be, of course, where uh, Mayor Pete Budovich was the mayor for a couple of terms. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chaos in Ontario courtrooms right now. An Ontario Court of Appeal decision that found a legislative change in the law was incorrectly applied by Ontario judges, not just in one or two cases, but dozens of cases, could call for new trials for an awful lot of trials that have already come, gone, people have been convicted. Well... It's it's a mess for a whole lot of reasons. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Jeff Manish, criminal lawyer with Ross and McBride here in town, and of course a uh, former Crown attorney. Good to see you again, my friend. Thanks for coming in today. Nice to see you, Bill. It's a fun experience to come in the studio. This is uh, really what we're going to talk about here is is really all of an offshoot of the very controversial uh, uh, trial of the murder of Colin Bushy that happened out west a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, the federal government, well, the prime minister himself at that time, uh, was very opinionated about uh, the, how they, not just the verdict, but how they accomplished that verdict. Uh, and they decided to make some changes. And that's kind of where our story begins, isn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, what the changes were, one of the major changes was this. Uh, for many, many years, each council in selecting a jury, Crown and Defense, would have the opportunity to challenge a juror, meaning simply, I challenge, and the juror is then basically uh, dismissed from service. And they don't have to give reasons why. And for many years, that's been an essential part of the jury selection mm-hmm. process. Well, after the Bushy case, the federal government said, we're going to end that. And they did away with it in legislation. And the legislation was to come into effect on September the 19th. But what they didn't do was to say, and for those who are already in the system, you're going to still get challenges or not, or some form of transitional provision. And so the legal concept then that comes into play is this. So they have this law coming into play September 19th. Does it apply retrospectively to cases that have been and are in the system already or prospectively for cases that come in from this day forward? And they didn't say. And that gave rise to the problem. And did it, the onus was then on, on the judge? Well, how it worked from that stage was counsel were basically put in a position of having to argue the case out argue the issue out legally. Does it have retrospective operation or prospective? And if it was meant to affect a substantive change, not just procedural, generally the principles of interpretational law say if it's a real substantive change, it can only work forwards. You get the benefit as it were of the system at the time. But what you had was the provincial attorney general challenged it and took the position, or at least put forward the position, this applies retrospectively. Other provinces took a different view. It said, no, it's only going to apply for those cases going forward. But the provincial attorney general here said no retrospectively, and it was argued in a whole lot of cases, including one here in Hamiltonville, the King case. Oh, yeah. And we had decisions that went different ways. In a number of decisions, Superior Court judges say, retrospective operation, sir, you don't get to challenge. In the Dale King case, Justice uh, Goodman said, no, I find this goes to a real substantive right. He ruled the change unconstitutional, but at the very least also said the accuser should get the chance to challenge peremptorily, and he got to do so. But what's this do to to the whole system and and, and the procedure that goes on here? Uh, Your good friend Frank Adario wrote a piece about this in the Globe and Mail a little while ago, Then, and we're kind of using that as a reference point. He told a little story there about one judge that was in that situation and said, and he said out loud, if I get this wrong, it's going to ruin the whole case that's coming up. I, I mean, just think, boy, the defense, just note to self, there's my appeal right there. Uh, but but it's, it's almost like there's two sets of rules here. Well, uh, the way we could phrase it is this, Bill. The case law is very clear over the course of years in a various number of issues. Any problems, any defect or flaw in the jury selection process, fundamental error, mm-hmm. new trial. And so you literally had a situation where a number of judges in Ontario said the accused does not get the benefit of challenges and a few judges saying he should. The case went to the Court of Appeal, and you know what they just decided? 
the accused who was in the system before September 19th should have gotten to challenge peremptorily. And in a case called Chohan, he didn't because the judge said retrospective operation, new trial. And now the deluge because there are a number of cases in Ontario where judges said it had retrospective operation. Those convictions are going to be considered flawed in law and we could have a whole host of new trials. Including a number of convicted murderers now that are going to get new trials. Sexual assault, murder, a host of others. And the key was it didn't have to happen. As Frank points out in the op-ed piece, if the, if the liberal government said, here's the transitional provision, and they apparently said federally, oh, we thought it would only have forward-looking prospective operation, that could have dealt with it. If the provincial attorney general didn't have his staff take this position, you wouldn't have the problem. If as soon as you had a case that came out some, uh, some months ago about preliminary hearings, that was another issue, no transition. They were taken away in a whole list of offenses. When a court said, no, it's only going to apply for cases September 19th forward, the AG could have said, well, what about jury selection? Didn't. So you had a bunch of these cases building up in the system, and what happens? They could now, the, the Attorney General could appeal this case for the Supreme Court of Canada. We'll see. But as it stands right now, there are a lot of convictions uh, that are in question. The, the AG at the time, by the way, was Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, the Federal Minister of Justice. Yeah. The AG is, is Downey. Yeah. Uh, well, Downey's the Ontario guy. Yeah. yeah. But uh, she holds both roles, of course, uh, with the federal government, as uh, Lamenti does now. And they're lawyers. Don't they understand this? Don't they look down the, the road just a little bit and say, what are the ramifications? Well, from a when, when crafting the, the, the law itself, the legislation, th th there's got to be a discussion, at least around the boardroom table at the, at the cabinet meeting. What's this going to do? You would have thought at the federal level, because they're the ones, Bill, that are going to say, pro basically, at what stage, have a transitional provision. Yeah. That's their job. When they don't turn their mind to doing it, why? Is it sloppy, dra sloppy draftsmanship? Is a failure to project ahead? Are there issues from the standpoint of the Minister of Justice and Federal Attorney General to decide on how to draft the legislation? That's in their lap. Administration of criminal justice is at the province end. And there were other provinces where they took the position, no, it's prospective. We aren't going to challenge it. The provincial attorney general has the authority to tell his crowns what position to take as a matter of crown policy. Why did it happen the way it did? Why didn't they take a, a position to say, look, we don't really need to have potential appeals? Ask them. But that's, if, if there are fail-safes in the system, Jeff, that's one at the federal level, one at the provincial level, and they both blew it. What was that line from Romeo and Juliet? A plague on both your houses. Yeah, no yeah, kidding. That's right. So, that's, so that's, that's one key issue that people, the Canadian public, or the, especially the Ontario public, should be made aware of. And Frank, to his credit, and he's a past president of the Ontario Criminal Law Association, outstanding lawyer, he wanted to make sure that people understood this is a problem, and these are the individuals who really should be held accountable. This is going to cost a lot of money. Potentially, as well as the effect on so many lives. Because remember that both from the standpoint of the accused, his family and the, the victim or victims and their family and the public generally all have an interest in seeing that justice is done in a timely way and in a way that's correct in law. We don't need to have appeals and new trials. And there are issues with respect to people's right to be tried within a reasonable period of time, potential loss of evidence. But really as well, let's just characterize it as the overall stress on the participants in the system who have to live in a state of uncertainty for far longer than they needed to. Well, even if you've not gone through this, and I don't, you have obviously, but if anybody who's listening to this, I mean, we do know some of the high-profile cases. We've seen some of them here in Hamilton that have received an awful lot of media attention. The process itself is traumatic for the people involved, for the victims, the families of the victims, uh, for the families of the accused, on and on it goes. They're, they're going to all have to relive this now. Well, and to stay with that one for a moment, Bill, I had a trial that was scheduled to take place back last fall. 
and the decision from the Court of Appeal had not yet come out. And my client was not in custody, and he had waited for several months for his trial. And I thought, why do we want to do this trial and have, I could argue the issue again, but if the judge rules against me, well, great, I'll have a ground of appeal potentially if the Court of Appeal comes out my way. Well, that's wonderful. If my client was convicted, that's great. He can have the cost of the trial, the cost of the appeal, and the cost of the new trial. Instead, the option we took was just to adjourn the case. But to do so, he waived his right to be tried within a reasonable period of time. That's what happened. And so everybody would have to wait for longer till that trial comes up. And as it's turned out now, with his case, we will, I will get to use the peremptory challenge route. But that whole predicament of not knowing how the law will be interpreted and how it will affect the scheduling of trial, well, if he is in custody, as many of these people were, well, then he's going to say, look, I want to take my chances now, and hopefully I'll pers- will persuade the judge to let me have the challenges. But what if not? New trials. I'm going to segue uh, because we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, by the way, and you've told us this before, and I think it bears repeating, uh, that when we talk about overcrowding in, in for instance, the, the Barton Street Jail and other uh, correctional facilities, a lot of those people are not convicted of anything. They're awaiting trial. That's right. Uh, and, and there's another example of it right now. Uh, but the other element of, of, of the delays, of course, in the courtroom are judges or the lack of and the appointment of judges. And, uh, you know, and again, a pox on both the houses because both levels of government have been very, very uh, slow at, 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 at filling some of these vacancies. But the, you, you've mentioned there's a process involved here, too, of how these judges are selected. Uh, my understanding is here in Ontario, for years now, we've, we're doing it right. Now the, this government, the Ford government, apparently says we, we're, we're going to change it. Yeah, and that's another concern. And again, Frank has written a column on that that was in the spec uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ford government has proposed a change. And right now in Ontario, we have an outstanding system of the appointment of judges. And a key component of it is something we've had for 30 years, and that's called the Judicial Appointment Advisory Committee. It's 13 members, a number of the members of the public, representation from the bar, judiciary and others. And they go through a whole close, intense vetting process to interview potential candidates and will come up with a recommendation, highly recommended, recommended, or unqualified. And basically, the highly recommended are going to make it down to the final cut for the attorney general to choose. And you get outstanding appointments through that vetting process. Because, well, because you know, out in the public there, Jeff, and I probably people think, oh, that's just a patronage appointment. You know, the liberals are in government, they're going to appoint liberal judges. Conservatives, conservative judges, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot more intricate than that, at least at the Ontario level anyway. And certainly the, the, the Ontario process is meant to ensure impartiality in the process, in addition to assuring that you're going to get the best candidates. And so that's something that's been implemented. That isn't done at the federal level. They don't have the same kind of process. And I won't comment further in relation to that other than to say they are very different. And many years ago, I heard Erwin Kotler, who was a former justice minister, yep. he, was, he was on record as saying he wanted to reform the federal process. In what way? To make it more like the Ontario process. Now, that didn't come to pass. But the Ford government wants to change it now. They just want two categories, qualified, not qualified. And if they get the report from the committee saying not qualified, well, the AG wants to be able to know uh, who was on the list of the not qualifieds and potentially send it back to the committee to reconsider and get to see the whole list and get to add his own potential additional categories or, quali- or, or characteristics that he might want to see. And so the whole world of the careful scrutiny is in, apparently going to be broadened and neutralized in a significant way. That's what's being proposed. But what was great about this system, and it, you know, it's been in place, as you say, for 30 years, is is that it 
it, it was based on uh, basically on you know the, the person's track record, et cetera, et cetera. It was based on merit. Exactly. Uh, this sounds like an attempt to put the partisanship back in uh, as a number one priority here. And and the cover. The political coverage, we want to speed up the process of appointing judges. We want to streamline it. We want to make it more efficient. Well, what could we call on that one? We'd really say, really, there's a way to do it more efficiently, which is go through the process of getting the recommendations from the committee and acting on them. And that has been a slow process. I'm sure right now in any given day or week or month in the system, there are judicial appointments that need to be filled. I know we have one in Hamilton. I know there are in other places where the provincial government has dragged its heels on the appointment process. Why? Is it that they're waiting for this kind of reform so they can broaden their selection capacity and potentially nullify the influence of the committee? I just don't understand it at all. It, it, it truly isn't broke. And who was it? Charles Oakley, the basketball player, said, if it ain't broke, don't break it. <laughs> well, you could use that here. This is a system that is working. And again, it will take the public to express to the provincial government, don't make the change. Because of these ramifications. I mean, if there's one place where you've got to take the partisanship out of it, I think it's the appointment, to, 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 especially to the bench. Uh, I mean, this is a government that, let's not forget, just a couple of months after they got elected, uh, they needed a new OPP commissioner, and they changed the, the criteria. The, you know, the, the guy that he wanted in there didn't fit, so they changed the criteria and, and got him in there. After all the pushback, of course, from the public, uh, you know, he, he finally stepped back from the job. But, Jeff, we can't afford to do that with judges now. That's right. And, and I think, Bill, as you pointed out, if we have a measure of skepticism or concern about the potential risk for patronage-based appointment processes by this government, and we, uh, we put that sort of filter on any potential change, do you not have reason to be concerned that this is done to potentially facilitate patronage appointments? And they aren't in the interest of justice. You want the best candidates. If you have a system that is currently providing the best candidates for appointment in the most independent, impartial fashion, I'm, I'm lost on the logic of changing it. Well, I can tell you anecdotally from the, the, the people we've seen on the bench here in the Hamilton area, the process works. We've had some outstanding judges that served here for many, many years. Well, and, and I know I've gone to swearings end of many of them, and, <laughs> and I will chat with uh, the, the, the chief justice, senior justice, whoever is there, another good appointment, another good appointment. I mean, we've just seen many that are, so many that are outstanding. And here's the other thing. The workload of the Ontario Court of Justice is only going to increase because of what the federal government did. I mentioned before, they've taken over the right to have a, the right to have a preliminary hearing in a number, whole big, broad number of cases. It may well turn out that people say, well, if I can't have a preliminary hearing, which is a step you do before a trial in Superior Court, well, then I'll just deal with the trial in the Ontario Court. And now we come back to delay. Trials at the Ontario Court level have to be completed within 18 months of the date of arrest to the end of the trial. And if not, there's a risk the case will be thrown out for the individual not getting his trial within a reasonable period of time. You've got a crown who's sitting there with a stack of stuff of probably a foot high right now on his desk, and then somebody, a clerk, comes in and piles another 20 on and said, we have to retry these two. I, I understand that. Or a trial coordinator being faced with, just a minute, this case has to be done within 18 months. We don't have the court time. Jeff Manishin uh, from Ross and McBride. It's always enlightening, Jeff. Thanks so much for coming in today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Good to see you again. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.